You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. Welcome back to season four of Leading Up. I was so excited to have Brad Watt, the Chief Learning Officer from Colgate-Palmolive on the podcast this week. He had this really cool concept of getting the right people with the right skills, doing the right work, the right way, and the role of leaders in making those things happen. The CEO, I would say, is absolutely important. They provide the vision and the strategy and the resources to be able to get things done. But at the end of the day, it's the people that innovate. It's the people that understand consumers or individuals' needs. And it's the people working together that that ultimately create the competitive advantage in the organization. Brad has worn many hats during his decades-long career at the consumer products company Colgate-Palmolive. He's a true global leader, having held leadership positions in America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Currently, he's the chief learning officer, a position that leverages his deep management experience to ensure the company and its employees are set up to thrive in the digital economy. Brad is a member of the Board of Trustees of the American Management Association, a Gartner advisor. He studied at Henley Business School, Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan, and uh, what a pleasure to uh, to join you on this really, really important uh, discussion. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today. I want to start with, I think in the press, we hero worship CEOs and put them on the covers of magazines and write incessantly about them. And sometimes I think they get too much credit when things are going well, too much blame when things aren't. And you and I have talked and you have a pretty strong set of thoughts around, it's all about the team, not necessarily just the leader. So let's compare it then. I know you're a big fan of Formula One. Is it the driver or is it the team? I think it's both, right? My favorite driver is Lewis Hamilton, winner of seven arguably eight world titles. And uh, he's an amazing driver who started at a very, very young age and he and he just built the ability to be able to get into a motor car and, and, and do really well, right? Uh, so yes, the driver is important, no doubt. I don't think Mercedes could win a world championship without a great driver, but then it's the team. It's how everybody that, that works at Mercedes from Toto Wolf, who's the leader, who provides the strategy, provides the resources to the individual that, you know, changes the tires or, or, or stops the car on the mark. Every one of them absolutely has a skill that is important. And it's the collective ability to be able to use those skills together that gets them to a two-second pit stop that wins races, right? So uh, the I think the answer to your question is both. It's not one or the other, but the mixture of those two ingredients that actually creates the magic. So let's assume I'm not the leader, how do I best contribute to a high-performing team? Like, how do you think about that? How do you advise early career people? You do a lot of development, and I want to get to what leaders do well, but if we could just start, what do followers do well? You know, if you just even think about the word leader, right? You could be leading one person, you could be leading a team, you could be leading a function, or you could be leading an organization, but leaders in the front. And uh, I think, and this is just a personal philosophy, is you've got to lead by example. Your people look up to the leader. So you as an individual need to 
behave in the right way and, and set the right example. And then I think you've got to create the environment or be that team player that that really reaches out and creates and cultivates trust. I think those are key components to, to how you, either as an individual contributor or as a manager leader of, of people, you, you could do both, right? If you're the person in the team that, that's always the, you know, creating havoc and not collaborating and not being inclusive, that's not going to create a good environment. So, you know, do your part, set the example and, and others will follow as an individual contributor. And then as a leader, you know, it's absolutely your responsibility to be able to create the right environment to allow experimentation and to cultivate trust. Yeah. So there's uh, the famous social psychologist, Kurt Lewin, I think it was in the 40s, 50s. And he came up with this equation that behavior is a function of the person and the environment and kind of proved that by running experiments, right? And the metaphor that I like is the dirty fishbowl. So like imagine a dirty fishbowl, a bunch of fish, and you take the fish out, send them away for some training and clean them all up, scrubbed, clean and perfect. And you bring them back from training and put them back in the dirty fishbowl what of course happens is he becomes a dirty fish again because the environment isn't there. And you've talked about environment and all of that and building trust. How do you see leaders create that environment? How do they create an environment for teams to flourish or people to do their best work? You know, we, we employ people with very specific skills. And, I, and I've seen it so many times where you go out and you recruit somebody and you bring them in and uh, you've spent a lot of money actually trying to find that particular individual with those particular skills. And then they come into the organization and then you don't want them to use those skills. You want them to do what you want them to do, right? And it's like, and I think that's often quite, you know, the problem, right? The dirty fishbowl is you, you go out and you find a very specific individual. You, you don't want to put them into an environment where they can't perform. You rather want to put them into an environment where they can perform. And I think leaders need to create that environment where they absolutely you know, trust, empower, and hold accountable individuals with very specific skills. You, you wouldn't put the guy that changes the tire into the driver's seat of a Formula One car, right? Like They're not going to perform. So put the right people with the right skills in the right place to be able to do the right stuff and then allow them to actually get out and do their thing and then provide the support and the encouragement and allow, you know, failure. And, you know, I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, there's only two things you can do, right? You can either succeed or you can learn. You never fail. If you're not getting it right the first time, you, you need to learn from that and you need to try it again. You know, I think that's the, the type of environment that, that certainly I like to create in my teams. It's actually interesting. I'll, I'll go off on a bit of a tangent now, but generative AI is, is the big thing right uh, at the moment. And um, you can use generative AI or you can approach generative AI in two ways. One way, which is like, we've got to be really careful of this thing because it's it could be dangerous and it could create all sorts of havoc. Or we can learn from generative AI and we can learn how to use it. And we need to understand the risk and experiment with it and see what it can do and what it can't do, right? And I think that's the, the type of thing that we've got to continuously look at and, and face and say, okay, how do we create an environment where we can experiment and learn. And if the learning is good, we'll progress it. If the learning is not good, how do we then retract and, and move in another direction, right? So that, that's the kind of, that's the dirty fishbowl, the clean fishbowl, right? Yeah. And I'm reminded Abraham Maslow said that people learn to the extent that they feel safe enough to dare. What do you have to do to make a place feel safe enough for people to to dare in terms of what we see out there that people are feeling disengaged or disconnected from the business. There's not a lot of research right now that says people are feeling safe enough to dare out in the business world. 
Yeah, you know, I'll go back to my Formula One analogy, right? You, you're not going to get into a Formula One car on your in your first race. A lot of the successful drivers, they started in go-karts that, you know, were small and they learned how to handle a go-kart and then they moved up to Formula 4 and then Formula 3 and then Formula 2 and then, you know, ultimately they got to the pinnacle of racing, which is is Formula 1. So I think about in a business context, you know, don't take a person and throw them into a, a job that they're just not equipped to do and then wonder why they fail. I think as, as leaders and managers, it's up to us to really build people, you know, and build their ability to be able to do things, give them small projects and small tasks, give them the experiences that are going to help them to to build the skills and and gain the confidence. And then, you know, you can move from smaller to medium to larger uh, levels of higher accountability and more responsibility. And I think that's how we've got to think about organizations, which is just a collection of people, right? And we've got people at different levels at different stages. And how do we create those environments where they can learn, where they can experiment, where they can build that muscle so ultimately they can lead bigger teams and make more of an impact and then hold people accountable? You know, I I firmly believe that over time, given the right opportunities and and gaining the right skills, you also need to be accountable for it. I think it, it drives motivation and it actually drives ownership to a large degree if, if somebody feels that they're actually accountable for doing something. Yeah, I've heard you talk about accountability before. And I think a lot of people, they hear accountability and they think punishment. And I feel like you use the term differently. I've heard you use just different words around helping and coaching and trusting. So I'm wondering if you could talk about just your point of view on how does a leader hold people accountable? Yeah, I think, you know, this is uh, an area that's just really close to my heart. And I'll, I'll just really reflect on the job that I do right now, which is as chief learning officer. I think it's it's incumbent on me to understand the jobs that need to get done. And then, you know, if you can understand the jobs that people need to do, and then the skills that they need to do those jobs, and I'm talking about hard and soft skills, right? Because I think a lot of focus is on the hard skill, which is, you know, we, we, we're we're trying to build digital marketing campaigns. Have we got the right skills in the organization to do that? But we we sometimes neglect the leadership capability. You know, as you move from an individual contributor to a middle manager, what are those new softer skills that you need to learn? Communication, listening with empathy and, and, and the like. And we need to equip people with those. So I think as a leader of others, your first job is incumbent on understanding what it is, what is the job that needs to get done? What are the skills that people need to do those jobs? And then equip them with those skills, right? So over time, you know, send them to training, allow them the space to actually learn. One of the things that we did at Colgate actually to create capacity to learn was we introduced Learning Fridays, where individuals are expected to go out and and actually learn something, either something as a team that they want a skill that they want to build together or individually as a leader, you know, one of the softer skills that that you want to focus in on and and, and work on, right? So creating the capacity to learn, I think, is absolutely critical. And as a leader, providing that opportunity for people, giving them the space to learn, giving them the opportunities to learn, and, and really taking that on as a personal responsibility so that in time you can empower them and hold them accountable. So, Brad, you have an orientation around leadership and I've heard you say that the leader's first responsibility is to develop people. And Dave Ulrich, kind of the father of modern HR professor at University of Michigan, and and I've seen him present research that he lists like 36 leadership competencies. And developing people 
comes in dead last. I forget if it's 36. I don't know the exact number, but it's like, this is the thing that they're worst at. And I know it's something that you hold dearly. And I'd love to have you kind of talk about why do you hold that view and how do you try and imprint it on Colgate Palmolive? I, I don't know why it comes in last. And, and maybe I think if you differentiated that data and said winning companies versus other companies, I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the data, but but you might see a different picture, right? You know, I'll go back to where we started, which is at the end of the day, companies are just a collection of people. And if we haven't got people with the right skills, doing the right things and working in the right way, then you're going to create chaos, you're going to create friction, and you're going to create anxiety in an organization. You know, an organization is like a body to a large degree, right? You've got a mind, the skills that you have in the organization, you've got a body, the way the organization is organized, the people in the, in the way that they've organized. You've got a soul, which is the mindsets and the stories and the, the legacies of an organization. You've got the DNA. The DNA is essentially the purpose, the values, and the leadership uh, principles that you embrace. And they all need to work together, you know, in order for the organization to thrive, like a body would thrive, right? So you've got to keep the mind sharp. You've got to keep the body fit. You've got to keep the soul true. And the DNA needs to all ladder up in the right direction. We've got a purpose. We have values that expect a way of behaving in the organization. And we have leadership principles in terms of how we want our leaders to actually behave in time. So I think as I think about the question at at totality, it really is about making sure that all of those things are are working in concert. If you don't have the right skills, you're going to fall short of the things that you need to do. If you haven't organized those pieces properly, you're not going to be able to create the mechanism to get things done, right? So you're going to lose trust in the organization. You're going to lose trust in in where you need to hand over things. And if you're not all working towards the right purpose, you create confusion and you're not really sure, you know, how, what we're doing, is it actually contributing to to where we want to go? So I think that's the important piece of of all of that, right, Is, is just making sure that you've identified and organized and then work on all those people and its leaders that help to define that direction and provide the environment to be able to get people to do the things that they need to do and then just let them get out there and do it, right? Like, uh, don't get in their way. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. I wanted to go back to this concept about the leader's role because you described the leader as their job is to develop people. And then you described as accountability as like helping them and supporting them and removing barriers. And I think what we see is that a lot of people think that job of management is more of the hard skills, pushing projects and managing up and down and managing meetings and schedules and status and things like that. And they're not so good at all of those other things, like taking the time to develop people. And I'm wondering, what advice do you have for those that don't take the time to do the softer skills, the leadership skills? How do you do that? Do you teach that? Do you recruit for that? 
Do you find people that are naturally better at it than others? Well, so here's an interesting thought, and I've heard Simon Sinek, you know, talk about this and and saying that middle management is really where a lot of companies fall short, right? You've got strategic leaders that know the vision, they know where to go. You've got individual contributors that have the skills and, and are able to do jobs. But what happens in an organization really is that these individual contributors who are good at tasks, get good at doing things, they become that next level manager, right? And I think, you know, in, if you're in an organization, Colgate, thank goodness, is not one of those organizations where you don't have a good leadership program that p- prepares people to move from individual contributor to manager of others and then leader of, of, of functions or leader of sort of areas. I think what you can do is just, hey, go out there and, and, and skill yourself up, right? Like uh, LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, there, there are so many places where people can actually go to and get access to how to be a, a better leader. And and I think that's the that's the big thing, right? You know, like you when you're on an aircraft, they say put your mask on first. You can and you should, you know. If you're now being promoted as, you know, an individual contributor that had no responsibility of people but just responsibility of task, to now a, a person who has got both responsibility of task and responsibility of people, go and figure out what that means and what are the attributes of great leaders. Get access to and learn and start, you know, practicing those skills. And in time, you'll start to do things differently and you'll start to have impacts on people and you'll start to see the reaction of those people. And motivated, well-skilled individuals will contribute more and you will, you will achieve your goals while they achieve their goals, which is, I think, the, uh, the, the magic, right? Yeah. So building on that same concept of leaders developing people, Michael Porter from Harvard Business School, the strategy professor, I remember one time he said that great leaders teach strategy. So it's not enough to come up with one you talked about, but you've got to make it teachable. Jack Welsh used to call it a teachable point of view, but you got to make it teachable for people to understand it. It's not enough to communicate. It's communicate so that everyone understands. And I've heard you say that that our philosophy is great leaders teach. And I've heard you I've heard you say the phrase a number of times. So I'd love to hear and see if we can talk a little bit about the, just the concept about leaders teaching. We actually say great leaders teach and Colgate leaders teach. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, I think that the role of a leader is, is you know, to help others to, to reach their goals. And you can do that through, through really coaching and helping and, and teaching, right? If you read a book, you'll retain 10%. If you teach somebody the content in that book, you'll actually know more closer to 100% of it. Well, you need to know it because well, you can't teach it. So I think that's the first thing is if you want a job to be done in a right way, really make sure that you understand what needs to get done so that you can coach and help and teach and and, and get people to, to move in the right direction. I like, though, the idea that great leaders teach, Colgate leaders teach. It reminds me of all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Like, so that means all Colgate leaders are great. And and I think that it's a really interesting mindset. Is it true, let me say, that you, you're not going to make it up the ranks if you're not a leader teacher, if you're not supporting development? You're just not going to make it at our company. Is that true? No, with, without a doubt. You know, and I, and I think in the world that we live in, Alan, just maybe to build on that a little bit and why it's so important is you think about and, and I, I even reflect on my career and, and when I was growing up, the world was slower. You know, things were more deliberate. You could take people out of the flow of work and you could put them in training for two days, three days, a week. 
you know, and then you bring them back and they can get going. Today, at the speed of change, you've got to make sure that you're bringing learning into the flow of work. And what better way to bring learning into the flow of work than actually to have somebody teach you on the job? Let's go back to the old apprentice type model, but we've got to build, buy, and borrow. You buy in the right skills, you, you use those skills to help you know, build the skills in the organization. And then you put those people in different places and, and have them use their skills so that we can actually get scaled and, and the like, right? So um, it's twofold. It's number one, you become a master of what you're doing if you teach it. And you really are doing it in the way that the work is done, which is where the power resides. And then you're helping people get to where they need to get to. Yeah, I, and I like how you framed it because it's almost like I can hook everything you say back to the right people with the right skills doing the right work and doing it the right way when I when I keep going back to that framework. I'm wondering when managers are stepping up for the first time, and I think we're talking to a lot of listeners that are aspiring leaders. They have a lot of potential and they, they have great ambition. They're not a leader yet. They want to be or they're a frontline leader first time. What about those that are, they feel nervous watching the work get done and they know what needs to get done and how to do it. But the idea of just having to let other people fail and struggle along and not jump in and do work. Do you see it? Do people struggle with it? And how do you coach around that? It's almost expected that people will struggle with it. If you're an individual contributor and your individual objectives were really around the how you got things done and when you got things done, now you become a manager and you've got to rely on other people doing things. What, what I would say is that um, delegation is not abdication, right? And, and that's the mistake that a lot of people make. And I think that's where you erode trust is you go out, you delegate, the job doesn't get done and you jump all over them or you dump all over them like a you know a ton of bricks, right? And then you've lost the trust and, and who's going to want to work for you again? Rather, it's, you know, you delegate and, and sometimes it actually means more work, right? Because then you've got to coach and you've got to help and you've got to remove barriers and you've got to nurture and, and help that thing through. But as people take on more and you empower people more, but you give them the support that they need, they build the confidence, they build the skill, and then they build the ability to actually get things done. And I, by the way, I can point to both ways, right? Some people that have really behaved like that and helped me, and I've I've really got a lot out of it. And those others that are micromanaged, and and I've hated it. I have not enjoyed working for that type of person at all. So I think I think that's what you've got to do, right? And then know that people learn through the things that they do, right? And uh, they're either successful at doing it or they're learning from it. But it's it's really important that you allow people to be able to learn. And, you know, we're all, I think we, we can all reflect on ourselves. You take a nine volt battery and you put it on your tongue and it stings. <laughs> You're not doing it again. <laughs> that, that's a learning experience, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, just make sure that they're not big experiences that are going to be detrimental. You've got to do it in, in a metered fashion. But as an individual, take responsibility, you know, put your hand up, put your foot into the ring. Yeah. I love delegation is not abdication, right? So that as a leader, you ha you must delegate and get work done through others, but you still have to get the work done. So you've, you've really got to come to grips with supporting other people, coaching them and doing the things to help them become successful. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, you, it's the environment that you create, right? If people are scared to come to you because they've got a problem, most likely they're going to fail. 
if they've got a problem and you're approachable and they can talk to you about it and know that you're not going to behave adversely, they'll be more likely to come to you and ask you, you know, for help and guidance and inputs. What I always used to say, and, and I had a manager who did this, and it's like Robin Hood, right? Steal from the rich and give to the poor. He used to always say to me, you know, don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with three solutions and I'll help you decide what the better solution is. And I think that that's what you need to encourage, right? So you get people to really think through the pros and cons, what would work, what wouldn't work, where could we potentially get stuck? But based on the facts, this is where we are and and this is what I would recommend we do. And you might agree or not agree, but at least that individual's had the opportunity to think through the way things would turn out if they had gone any which route. And I think that's what we talk about when we talk about empowerment is that, right? Well, it's always, it's back to Maslow's people have to feel safe enough to dare. And I think how do leaders do that? And you've said they build trust. And so if I just think about trust for a second, a couple of interesting things. We know from Edelman's trust barometer, they do a big giant survey every year. And it was kind of interesting that um, trust of societal institutions is record low, like falling, crumbling, and, and not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, but businesses are slowly getting better. But Gallup did a survey in May that less than a quarter of people strongly trust their employer. So not as strong. And then I look at the research from uh, Kim Cameron and a group of colleagues at the University of Michigan. And this is what I found, thought was interesting is that when high trust isn't present, and they mean this for society, organizations of any kind, social, your company. But when high trust isn't present, you need high levels of social control to ensure compliance and obedience. And I think, do you really want to run a company with compliance and obedience or do you want commitment? And you've talked a lot about trust. So I'm wondering, talk about what, what you see as the role of a leader in terms of creating trust. You know, that's such a big question, Alan. And it, it, I don't even know where to start start, to be honest with you, because I think you, you've got to start with trust. You, you've got trust to lose. I think it's very difficult to actually build trust. I think what you have to do is you say, I've got trust, and through my behavior, I've got it to lose. That that drives a different type of mentality. I think compliance, you've got to have your guardrails, and I think it's important that people understand the guardrails in which to operate. But it's behavior at the end of the day. It's your behavior as a leader that drives the behavior of others in the organization. Let me just give you, illustrate through example. If if we really are trying to be an ethical company, right, which we are, you know, I think we've been in the top 10 for the last 10 plus years, and we've got a very strong compliance program that we put into place. But it's not the big stick thou ought to do this. It's more the, hey, this is part of our culture. This is who we are. And we're proud of it, right? So if you join Colgate, you feel good, right? Because we're a company that really does good for mankind. We've always done it for the last 200 plus years. We create products that are good for people. So, you know, everything that we do is really thought through of, in, in a way that we, we don't want to lose that trust. We don't want to lose that with our consumers. We don't want to lose that with our employees. We don't want to lose that with our shareholders and our people who invest in us, right? But but the the role of the leader is is key here. You've got to lead by example that comes back to what we were talking about right in the beginning. You know, if you're going to do something, expect others to do exactly what you're going to do. So I think as it comes to establishing trust and building psychological safety and all of these kind of things, it starts at the top, but it's as important at the bottom, right? So you need a everybody in the organization needs to buy into it, needs to work toward it. 
And I think when you do that together as, as a collective, that's when you get organizations that are, you know, the, the politics is reduced and the, the ability to be able to speak up is increased. And so, Brad, how does that manifest, let's say, just building trust on a team, like a small team that meets every week? How do they build reservoirs of trust? Or what are the things people do that strengthen trust or the opposite, erode trust? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, you know, I think you've got to create an environment where people can absolutely speak openly. You know, you, you're not going to take punitive action against somebody because they have an idea that's a little bit contrary to, to yours. We're Not to say that you have to do what they say, but you've got to allow them to at least express what's on their mind. And then as a collective, you need to be able to listen with empathy and move beyond that. And create opportunities where you can actually grow together. I think, you know, I've seen so many leaders that that just want it my way or the highway, command and control, and they don't invite participation and constructive dialogue. And that is toxic. At a time that is just, uh, it, 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 nobody feels empowered and they do what they have to do, the bare minimum to, and they stay out of trouble so they don't take risks, right? And in a world that, that we live in today, I think you, you, you've got to experiment, you've got to try things differently and you've got to learn from those things. To do that, you need a psychologically safe environment. Otherwise, it's not conducive to learning and it's not in, conducive to growing. So what are the derailers for early career leaders? The career breakers, the things that uh, that they do wrong, a, a pitfall or something we could look out for? I think it is that move from I was in the spotlight based on the things that I did and the things I achieved to now my team is in the spotlight and and I will be rewarded for the things that they do. And that's not so easy in the early days, right? So what happens is you thrust yourself into the spotlight for the work that your team has done. And by doing that, you, you're kind of eroding their contribution and you're eroding their confidence and their self-worth, right? Because you're taking all the glory. The more you can give your team the credit, the, the better you, it reflects on you. The more people you can promote, the more people you can push into the organization, the more it's reflected on you as a great leader, as a great developer of people, as a great skill contributor, because you're bringing the right skills into the organization and you're allowing those people to do their jobs. So, you know, that those are the things I think you've got to be aware of. The other thing which I think is really important is understanding the motivators of your team and, and how do you feed those motivators. Everybody likes different things, right? So understanding them so that you can help to feed them and get to know people on a personal basis. You know, it's at the end of the day, we're all people. We're not machines. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, if I had to to summarize in two words, the derailer, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, quiet ego. It's not about you when you're the leader. Now it's about them. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing is a leader as well, what you've got to do is you've got to create that environment. You've got to remove the barriers, right? So that they can do the things that, that need to get done. You've got to talk up and you've got to motivate down and, uh, and get alignment up and get alignment down. It's it, That's the role of a good leader is we can't do everything. We're going to do the right things. We're going to do the things that are important, the things that are going to move the business along and deliver to ultimately the, the, the purpose that we have as an organization, right? Not be not be derailed or pushed into and, and moved into different directions. Yeah, beautiful. So as we wrap up here, we have one question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? Oh, boy. Personally or professionally, anything? Yeah, well, you know, I, I always strive to be, you know, just a, a better leader in totality. 
And I think that what I'm really, really interested in at the moment, and I'm spending a lot of time and, and, and my team is doing actually quite a fair amount of experimentation in this space, is uh, generative AI. I, I do believe that this is going to be a game changer. Uh, I do believe that there are huge risks associated with it. But I think if you do it right and you can augment machine and human, it's going to create tremendous, tremendous competitive advantage in the future, both from an efficiency perspective, but also from a productivity or a effectiveness perspective, right? So, and it's nascent, it's new, it's, you know, lots to learn, but it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Momentous time and change around generative AI and thinking about its implications for learning and leadership are very interesting. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was fun, Alan. Let's do it again. Thanks again to Brad Watt for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. Did you learn something new this episode? If you did, and I hope you did, consider telling a friend about the show or sharing the show on LinkedIn. We want to inspire as many leaders as we can. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>